Hello and welcome to Refive Radio. I'm your host, Will Moyo. In partnership with Park Madison Partners, Real Estate Fund Intelligence is bringing you monthly discussions with some of the real estate industry's most innovative voices. On this month's show, Nancy Lachine, Park Madison's founder and managing partner, speaks to Bob Sessa, head of real estate for the Employees Retirement System of Texas. Bob discusses ERS's manager selection, thoughts on the market writ large, and a little politics. Thank you, Will. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is Nancy Lachine from Park Madison Partners, and I'm here on Zoom with Bob Sessa, who's responsible for real estate investments at Texas Employees Retirement System. Bob is well known in the real estate investment community and has been at ERS for over 20 years and in this seat for about 12 years. Since he began, Texas ERS's assets have ballooned to approximately 35 billion and real estate's grown from a standing start to a 12% target or over 4 billion in real estate investments and commitments. So today we're gonna talk about Bob's background, Texas ERS and the real estate strategy, how Texas tracks performance and uses benchmarks and indexes, finding opportunities, um, manager selection, and then we'll wade into politics. We'll touch on affordable housing and ESG considerations. Whew. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And I feel honored to have been asked to be on your show. So I look forward to the discussion. Well, first, I have to start with a disclaimer, which I promised you, Bob, I would say. Um, the opinions Bob is expressing here are his personal opinions and not that of his employer. So listen up, everybody. Um, well, thanks for joining us, Bob, and we're really delighted to have you. Um, let's talk about your background for starters. You grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, you went to school in New York. Um, as I recall, you swam on the swim team. We have that in common. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. So is that the common part you grew up in Oklahoma or you swam? <laughs> <laughs> the swim team. <laughs> <laughs> I figured as much. Uh, so, yeah, I um, I grew up in Oklahoma. I grew up basically in a fairly homogenous suburb of Oklahoma City uh, in a town called Edmond and uh, and went to Fordham in the Bronx on a swimming, swimming scholarship. So I literally went from one end of the spectrum to the other to the other end. So uh, it had a profound impact on me. Um, I talk about kind of my enlightenment evolution as a person, including views on life due to that experience. And I continue to evolve to this day. And uh, and that was a big foundation uh, for that. So it really sparked some inner growth and contemplation in me. I was really exposed to poverty and social justice issues that I really wasn't uh, growing up. And um, and really got me thinking and made me more aware of the broader issues facing society. And just our and how we and our part in that and how we play a part in that. And some we've also talked about how you spent some time near the border of El Paso doing volunteer service. Um, I believe you worked with an organization. You lived in a homeless shelter. Um, perhaps that was another major life event for you. Share that any lessons or um, experiences that you had. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So again, um, you know I. I uh, you know, just as we mentioned, talked, you know, grew up in Oklahoma, go to school in New York, and I stayed and worked for five years. So I spent about um, nine to 10 years in New York. And my employer at the time really encouraged volunteer work. So we could spend uh, uh, an hour or two a week uh, doing something in the community. And so it really kind of got me thinking that, you know, I should be getting more involved doing something. And, um, and my wife is a, a 
is basically a social worker slash teacher. And uh, she had taken a year off when she graduated college to do a year of volunteer service. And so I had never even realized you could do that. So she had done that. Um, you know, I'm kind of going through life in New York. And my joke is I, I got home one night at 630 and felt like I worked half a day. And I'm like, I got to get out of this lifestyle. You know, I'm kind of getting brainwashed into the to the New York lifestyle. And I've seen another way of living life. But but anyway, so um, I had been thinking of all this and I was like, you know, it's kind of time for a change. And I was speaking to my wife and uh, we thought, you know, I wanted to do a year of volunteer work, you know, part for me to kind of focus on my spirituality and part to try to give back or at least thinking I was going to give back. But in the experience, you're actually getting more out of it than I think you're putting in. But that's we can talk about that later. We decided it was either now do this. And uh, I was and I wanted to go to business school. So it was a good kind of uh break to do, or we'd have to do it when we're like 65 and retired. So, so we thought it was a good opportunity to kind of hit pause on the, on the, um, kind of the career track and take this year off and do it. And so, um, we spent a year on the border, uh, as I always say, we're a function of our life experience. And this was definitely an important time and, and continued that kind of enlightenment evolution for me as a person. And, uh, the border was just so powerful from a number of perspectives. Um, you know, the the one thing is you saw the love and generosity of the people um, that literally had nothing, and I mean nothing. I mean these these were people um, that were uh, homeless basically, or that were um, uh, leaving their house, leaving their hometowns to try to find a better way of life. And one example of this, of just the generosity and just the perspective of life that it helped uh, bring to me was. Um, there was a teenager and we um, we would say prayers before each meal. And this one time a teenager gave thanks for the roof over his head, a safe place to sleep and meals and prayed for those without a place to sleep. And I'm thinking this person, this, this teenager has no shelter. And yet he was so grateful for what that little bit he had. And here I am worrying about all sorts of meaningless things. And he's giving thanks for something that I just take for granted every day. And so it was those kind of experiences that really just, you know, make you uh, appreciate life and really all the things we do have. Um, so it was uh, it was a good experience for me and also learned how to meditate down there, which has also been very helpful. Are you still meditating? I uh, it, it, it's uh, it's kind of like exercise. It's fits and starts. So I'm back into it now. COVID kind of helped me kind of get back into it. So I'm trying to do yeah. that a little bit more, but it's it's tough. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I I learned to meditate as a teenager and was pretty religious about oh. it, but I haven't actually meditated in years now. And people are talking about it a lot lately, so that's why I asked. Yeah. Um, no, it is a good. It's a. I definitely strongly recommend it because it does help give you clarity and and uh, balance in life. So. so when you think about getting back from that experience more than you gave, and just kind of what what are the takeaways and how does that impact your life? and the way you live in your profession today? Are there things you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, that one example with the, um, you know, the teenager giving thanks, you know, for what little he had. I mean, that was just so powerful. The generosity. Uh, There's another example where a mother who had some kids and she finally got a job and she went out and um, got her first paycheck and she bought Coke and chips for the kids and stuff. And the kids were sharing it with us. 
And they were saying, no, you know, uh, um, you got to try this. You got to try that. I'm like, no, 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 this is yours. You know, because they, I mean, her mom, you know, their moms had worked so hard and, uh, and I just, the, the generosity and uh, the love that they showed and uh, the happiness with just, you know, cause it's all, it's all relative. And yet um, sometimes we get so worked up and stressed and yet we have so much more than probably 90% of the people or 95% of the people on this planet. And so it was, it was, uh, that was very powerful. Just so many experiences like that. And then another thing was I was just able to see the plight of the undocumented people and why would they risk their lives to try to get to the U S and you realize it's just pure human survival. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not, who wants to leave their house, their home, their hometown, unless you have no other choice. And that's basically what they were up against. And so you know, it, it really realized, you know, helped me to realize that they're not coming up here to, to, to piss us off or to leech, but they're just trying to find a job and, and just to live life, to just have sustenance. And so, um, you know, and I really think our border issues are more a function of failed foreign policy than anything else. And we really should be looking for better ways of creating a sustainable economy for our neighbors to the south. I mean, we just can't put up a border. It's just you know, if you think of your neighborhood, if you're living next to a crack house, you can put up as tall a fence and security as you want, but you're still going to probably have issues. So it's we got to find longer term, better solutions uh, to that issue. It is an issue that we have to address, but um, I'm not sure that just putting up a wall is going to create a long term solution. <laughs> you touch on two such important issues. One is just the power of gratitude and um, how, you know, if you wake up every morning and you're thankful for the roof over your head and just being alive and all, all the things that we can be thankful for. It definitely just is a change in perspective. Um, and also immigration, which of course is a lightning rod political issue. Um, yeah. And I think we have such a different perspective. I was in Arizona last week um, and I was, you know, at one point I was looking at the mountains that are 10 miles from the Mexican border. And it's such a different perspective about immigration. If you're looking at that mountain range than when you live in New York city and you're in a melting pot, and you know that without immigration, there'd be nobody to do, you know, half the jobs that, you know, you're dependent upon to get through your day. Um, so it's, it, it, we are a big country and these are such powerful and complicated issues. Um, yeah, so thanks definitely. for raising them. Let's talk about something that's a little simpler, which is um, ERS and the real estate strategy. Um, and so maybe, maybe before we kind of jump in, um, You've accomplished so much with the real estate program there. Maybe just give our audience a little bit of background. Um, I believe you started it or, you know, you were part of the original team. Um, so tell us about how it started and how it's evolved. Yes. So um, so I started uh, at ERS as a basically general equities analyst, a public equity anal, uh, equity analyst. And uh, within a, a year or two years of joining um, the REITs got added to the general indices, so the S&P 500, the S&P 400, et cetera. And when they got added to the indexes, I kind of raised my hand to cover to cover that sector. And so that's kind of when we started investing in REITs, obviously in an extremely small way. But a couple of years after that, um, I started advocating for creating a dedicated portfolio uh, of REITs. So we started off with a domestic REIT portfolio that was launched uh, shortly thereafter, and then we added international REITs probably in 2005 or six. I'm kind of getting the years, uh, you know, it's beginning blurry these days, but, you know, the gray, but um, added international REITs in, in, in about 2006. 
And as part of that discussion, we were also looking at adding alternatives generally. So private equity, private real estate, you know, some of those other hedge funds. And so we decided to go ahead and create a separate real estate asset class. So the, the re, those dedicated REIT portfolios were housed in the public equity sort of book. And then in 2007 and eight, we went ahead and got approval to create a separate real estate asset class and got an allocation of about 8%, I think it was seven or 8% to real estate in general, which included the private real estate as well as the REITs. And then we made our first commitment in about 2009 or 10. Oh, perfect timing, Bob. Yes, we got very lucky. We were able to learn a lot from people. So that was very helpful. Yeah, wow. That is perfect Thank timing. Thank you, GFC. So. Wish I could say we uh, yeah, had the crystal ball to uh, time it that perfectly. but. <laughs> so, uh, the, the audience probably doesn't appreciate how well um, your real estate portfolio has performed. Um, I guess I've been just really impressed that you've been early into um, different strategies, uh, European debt way before others in the market, um, early into industrial and overweight industrial as we kind of entered into this COVID period um, where pricing has just taken off. Um, you've had just an impressive ability to see opportunities early. Share with us a little bit about your secret sauce. Um, what are your valuable resources that you use to kind of figure out where the market, where the puck is going? Sure. Um, I really, there really is no secret sauce. Um, it's really just kind of how I, um, research things. So I really try to listen and read to a variety of people and sources uh, to form kind of a mosaic view of the landscape and the world and where things are trending. I really do try to get a sense of, of secular trends uh, as well as cyclical. Uh, and then, and importantly, I'm also trying to look for those views that are counter to what I believe in or what I might disagree with to, to poke holes in either my thesis or to see what I might be missing. Um, and that again is just, again, part of that mosaic and really just looking at a variety of, of various perspectives and views to, to help you form your own view. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say I'm somewhat constrained by nature so that when something's out of favor, I tend to take deep dives into those areas. So that's kind of the European debt was easy with that. Industrial was a little different. Um, we were studying the property types that really stood out for its uh, cash flow attributes and uh, and we weren't getting a lot of exposure through uh, diversified managers so we started adding dedicated portfolios so we got pretty overweight in that unfortunately we we took that bet off i wish i would have kept that on it actually would have just put the whole portfolio into that but uh, <laughs> but so um so my my uh, clairvoyance only does uh, definitely has limits there but um but you know, you 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 look at these areas where people may not like or or feel are out of favor, and you dive deep, and uh, sometimes it makes sense, and then sometimes uh, the consensus view is correct. So you know, retail is a great example of that um, we we you know when everybody was not liking it, et cetera, we we kind of took a, a took a look and then decided, yeah, you know what, this isn't you know for us, so we're underweight retail for that reason. But we 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 do look at retail deals uh, on a situational basis because we do feel there are some babies thrown out the bathwater because of that because people will just kind of strike it with a broad brush so we found some interesting deals there but uh, it's uh, it's still got a lot of headwinds in it what what does the portfolio look like today just give us sort of what the 
where where are you weighted and where where are you put adding more capital today? So we are um, essentially about um, 20 to 25 percent is international, with probably 70 percent of that uh, in Asia, and uh, 25 30 percent of that is in in the UK and Europe. We don't do anything in Latin America, and uh, domestically. We are uh, overweight the residential sector, and I say residential because that includes multifamily, student housing, manufactured housing. We actually have a pretty decent exposure to manufactured housing, which is really difficult to get, but we've been pretty fortunate uh, at finding a manager who's been able to get some, uh, source some great deals. So we've got um, decent exposure there, and senior housing is, is would obviously be part of that too, but that's a little bit less of a focus. Uh, we've been concerned about some of the supply demand issues there and the operational aspect of it. It's, you know, operational intensive. Mm -hmm. So we really don't have much exposure there, but we're, so we're overweight multifamily, uh, or I mean, residential, which includes the multifamily. Um, part of that was a function of, of pre-COVID. It was, uh, you know, the, you know, we were kind of long in the tooth in the economic cycle. Residential typically performs better on a relative basis. You can still lose money, but you'll typically lose less money. And then um, we're underweight office and retail. Those are kind of structural underweights for us mm -hmm. and uh, neutral uh, industrial. Uh, and I, oh, and I would say we're overweight REITs right now too, mm -hmm. relative to the general benchmark. I mean, to our general uh, trust level targets. Um, is that, is that because of your investment or because they're up over 50% this year? <laughs> yeah, no, that's because we did, uh, again, we did take a look at the relative value compared to the um, basically sure. general public equities. And, you know, we talked to our CIO earlier in the year and said, uh, this looks like a great, uh, you know, and the way I think about investing, it's all about probability. So kind of going back to your question about the secret sauce, to me, it's all about probabilities because we really don't know what the future is going to hold. But if you've got things more stacked in your favor than against, or the downside is is more limited than not, um, those are probably better bets to take than when they're the other way. So, mm -hmm. um, in this instance with the REITs, the the relative valuations were at like all time disparities. They had underperformed the prior year, you know, again at all time disparities relative to general indices. Um, you kind of have the reopening trade. Um, debt wasn't an issue like during the GFC, so they were in decent, you know, had de decent balance sheets. Um, and then just kind of the talk about inflation, et cetera. So there was a lot of positives that were, uh, um, I think, more than offsetting kind of the negatives or the risks. And we so we felt it was a good risk reward trade off. And so we, uh, Fortunately, the CIO um, agreed, and we were able to go overweight REITs, which has uh, played out so far this year. But you mm -hmm. know, who knows? Does ERS think of, of real estate as an inflation hedge? Uh, you know, real estate. Uh, we do kind of incorporate that aspect. I mean, it's it's one of many factors of why we invest in real estate. And so I would say it's an imperfect hedge. Uh, it really depends on how real how inflation manifests itself. And then within real estate, you've got certain property types that are based, you know, better inflation hedges than others. So, um, so I would say yes to an extent, but uh, you know, and obviously it depends. You know that right, right. famous it depends. <laughs> right. So how how does ERS benchmark performance in real estate? Are you indexing? Are you um... Are you using a specific benchmark? And 
and had you know are using a real rate of return hurdle how are you thinking about it yeah we 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 use uh, on the private real estate well i'll start off with the the, the private the uh, public real estate reits there that's that's a simpler um uh process because we have the uh, FTSE Ypres NARI uh, Global Developed Index so that we, we use that as our benchmark on the REIT side and that's very easy because it uh, covers all the basis and whatnot. On the, on the private side, we use the Odyssey Index, um, which is an imperfect benchmark. It's, it's, it, it's better than nothing, and it's it's much better than I think uh, you know for other alternative or illiquid assets. It's it's pretty decent, um, but it's domestic only, it's core only, and so there is some um, flaws to it compared to how we manage our book because we do have a non-core uh, exposure, and then we also have international exposure, which that benchmark does not include. So we do. Um, so it's an imperfect, but that's how you know we look at it, and we just you know try to account for it with that mind. And what's your private real estate benchmark right now? If you look across like your blended portfolio, the private real estate benchmark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the Odyssey index. Uh, we use the Odyssey index. Whatever as our benchmark. Okay. Right. And, right. Yeah. What was what what was your performance last year? Uh, it was about fifteen percent. Okay. As of uh, when you say last year, I'm using it as of kind of the trailing year return. Yeah. So as of like yeah. September. Yeah. Yeah. It'll probably look pretty good this year too. Hope so. <laughs> right. Let's see. We, so, we don't have as much industrial as I wish, but at least we've got the, the residential and the multifamily in there. Too. Right. Right. So nice. How are you thinking about this incredible rise in um, pricing for multifamily and for real estate? you know, the real estate that's in favor generally and, you know, declining cap rates. And, you know, are you worried about the exit cap rates? Are you worried about pricing or, you know, how, how are you, and how, if at all, can you protect yourself against rising interest rates and rising cap rates? Well, it really, uh, are we worried about it? You know, I worry about everything and everything it seems like. Um, but, um the one thing we are monitoring, so on the inflation side, um, we are watching it closely. I'm not too concerned about it near time because I do think it is, you know, that transitory, that that dirty word. Um, it seems like it is a function of COVID coming back, the supply chain disruptions, and so maybe it lasts another 12 to 18 months. Um, but longer term, with the wage growth. Uh, we've seen in the reconfiguration of the supply chain, which will take longer, that'll take three to five years mm-hmm. and longer. Um, we think that sustained inflation could be here for years uh, because wage inflation is typically stickier. Um, that reconfiguration of the supply chain where you're bringing some of that manufacturing back to the U.S. or near shoring, it's going to be, those are going to be more expensive goods Mm-hmm. So that is going to be an issue. Um, and so on the cap rates and the interest rates, our our big thing is if as long as the interest rates go up in a measured way and that they don't spike or create a disruption in the market, we should be okay. And, and they're going up for the right reasons. Are they going up because there is strong economic growth, uh, et cetera, then we will be okay. And in real estate, 
should be okay. And there's been a lot of studies talking about there's usually a very long lag between cap rates and interest rates. Assuming again that the uh, interest rates don't, you know, aren't too volatile or anything like that to create a major disruption or, or um, chaos in the market. Uh, real estate should should perform fine, and cap rates should should go up, you know, in a, a measured way too. Well, that all sounds like you should be able to sleep at night and not have to worry about that much mm-hmm. anymore. <laughs> um, well, and that's we are we are trying to figure out too of like how does the inflation you know, come about, but that's why we like our resi exposure because we think it would benefit from some inflation like we're seeing now. With Right, right. So speaking about resi, let's talk a little bit about affordable housing. Um, obviously a national issue, um, you know, is ERS an investor on the affordable side? And when I talk about affordable, I mean a small A, not necessarily the, the government programs, but rather, you know, uh, building or buying housing that's meant for um, the working population. Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, we define that as workforce housing, and we definitely mm-hmm. uh, have exposure there. Um, we've got some multifamily exposure there. We're in manufactured housing, which I think is um, a great example of affordable housing. It's actually cheaper than apartments, uh, and it allows um, a very affordable option to live in a community. And so we, so we do have uh, exposure through that, and we're and we're looking at um, adding it. Uh, adding another fund or two as well, um, because one of the things about the affordable housing space, that workforce housing space, is the profile, those cash flow profile and attributes. It's a great diversifier to some of our other uh, residential and uh, investments in the portfolio overall. And so that's really a, a part of the portfolio construction is to have that. And so the affordable housing, workforce housing strategy uh, is a is a great diversifier to have in your portfolio. And I would add, affordable housing is not just a U.S. issue. This is definitely a global issue. You know, Berlin is looking at potentially uh, nationalizing since it's the city, but taking over some of the housing in that city from the private market. Um, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, areas for expensive housing, Sydney, Melbourne. You know, it's uh, Europe. Uh, other places in, you know, London is not exactly cheap to live in. So it's a, it's a, um, a, a serious issue that we really uh, need to be thinking about. What are there parts of the country where you're more interested in investing in workforce housing than others? Um, I think it, it really. I mean, we 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 leave that up to the manager. I mean, we are a little worried about um, some of the rent regulations out there. Um, so. You know the quote on blue versus red states, um, so we get a little worried about that with government intervention in the market, which can really distort um, and uh, impact it. But uh, I don't think I mean it really comes down to the supply demand and making sure you've got you're in an area that's got good growth, good uh, fundamentals, etc. So we don't uh, I, I haven't found any particular area to be much better or much worse than another. Since these are your opinions, I can ask, what did you think about the National Foreclosure Moratorium during COVID? Well, I, I mean, it was uh, it was interesting, but I think it was necessary due to the pandemic. So I think there are definitely times, uh, you know, in our lives where you, you need to do something like that because, I mean, you can't kick people out into the street and they literally would have nowhere to go, uh, you know, especially with everything shut down, people are losing jobs. And so... I thought that made 
good sense for the society and community at large. I mean, we were probably all better off for that because you don't want people running around. There would probably been a lot more crime and social havoc. So I think that was um, necessary. What really bothered me, though, was when you had national retailers who refused to pay their rent, but you know they could. You know, they had the balance sheets to do that. And that really that really kind of uh, miffed me because um, I don't think they realized that some of the the landowners are indirectly these pensioners and our pensioners get $20,000 a year. And so these are, um, you know, they need every, uh, you know, every dollar we earn for them uh, helps. So um, those national retailers didn't pay. That was, that was a little tough, but um, on the apartment side, I mean, I, you know, we, we had to do what was, uh, that, that was probably a smart, broader societal uh, issue to do. Yeah, I mean, you touch on how complicated all these issues are, because once you start favoring one group, you know, by definition, you're disadvantaging another and it might affect the, you know, the banks or the mortgage and foreclosure and who holds those mortgages. And, you know, there is a ripple effect for every decision. Um, and so it is a very tricky balancing act. But as you said, you know, impacting yeah. the people who, you know, not not taking roofs off of uh, out of not taking yeah. people away from their roofs was clearly a national priority. Are, are there national, other national political issues that are impacting your investment strategy today? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I want to, something else on the affordable housing um, uh -huh. issue is that, you know, we keep talking about one side of the equation, which is the cost. And we're not looking at the other side of the equation, which is the income side. And, you know, we're, we're not spending enough time, you know, understanding why people that have full-time jobs are not able to live in the city they work in. And why is that? Why are we not paying them enough? And I say, you know, we, but why are the companies they work for not paying them enough? And, um, and I know, I, I think there was a study out there that some national companies like Walmart, McDonald's have meaningful amount of employees on government assistance. Why are we subsidizing their payroll? And so I think we need to really look at these issues broader and holistically because we're, you know, we could be creating unintended consequences by creating these affordable housing mandates versus, you know, let's, you know, browbeat these companies into paying their employees enough so that they're off government assistance. I mean, there's definitely going to be a, a segment of the population that needs help, needs government assistance, et cetera. But there's definitely going to be some that don't. And we should be really looking at this issue deeper and broader to make sure we understand all these pieces to it. So are you, are you thinking about, for example, mandating a higher minimum wage at the national level? I mean, that, that could be part of it. That's another complicated issue because, um, you know, you've like, so for the, the, the example I use is, you know, my sons, you know, they don't, they didn't need to work in, in high school. I mean, we had enough money to support them, et cetera. There's other families where, you know, they're, you know, uh, they, you know, those kids actually might be contributing to the family income. But anyway, I don't want my sons getting paid $15 an hour because that's going to give them too much. I wanted them to work. So the bottom line is I want them to work. So I want to teach them work ethic, et cetera. I wanted somebody else to tell them to clean the bathroom besides their mom and dad. And so, you know, they would work, but I don't want them to get, they don't need as much disposable income. They don't need as much income because we're paying for a lot of their expenses. And so if they have too much disposable income, we know what can happen with that versus somebody who's working next to them where they're either they're providing for a family or they're, this, you know, they're providing for themselves and they need that money to live 
to pay for rent, to pay for transportation, et cetera. So it's a complicated issue on the the minimum wage, but I mean, we do need to focus somehow on that. I mean, uh, I was speaking to somebody on this and they said, maybe we use experience as a, a way to get around kind of age discrimination. So somebody who is 25 or 30 working alongside, you know, uh, somebody who is 16 or 17, they could get paid more because they're, you know, been in the industry or have 10 years of a work experience or something like that uh, to offset some of those dynamics. Um, but it is, a, that's another couple. And, and I don't know what the answers are, but the bottom line is that's where we should be debating and spending our time is finding out solutions, trying to understand the unintended consequences of trying to find, you know, for various solutions that we think we're coming up with that would solve it. So. Well, as an unapologetic capitalist, yeah. which I think you've also claimed credit, uh, claimed that as part of your title, I am certainly an unapologetic capitalist. Um, what you know, the pandemic has definitely created some supply shortages that should help solve a lot of these issues. And as we've seen yeah. all around the country, um, you know, wages have gone up dramatically just to get people to come back to work. Um, something like yeah. 7 million people are still, you know, out of the workforce um, post COVID and, you know, many of them will go back, but they haven't all by, by sh for sure. And oh, there's probably yeah. a couple of million people who can't figure out how to go back to work either because of childcare issues or they're concerned about COVID and, um, you know, their circumstances yeah. have changed. So, um, but the market the market will definitely help increase wages, I would think, over the next year yeah. or two. Exactly. That's what it should do, right? I mean, uh, can't find your workers, you should be paying them more to, to draw them in. So. so what, given, you know, that you're, doesn't sound like you're terribly worried about long-term inflation or stagflation, um, you're not worried about declining cap rates across the board, you know, because it should be commensurate with economic growth and rental growth, especially in the sectors that you're invested in. Um, what are you worried about? What's keeping you up at night? Um, besides neighbors' dogs, uh, <laughs> I would say uh, I would say that I'm not necessarily not worried about inflation because we're definitely monitoring it. So that's something that we're just trying to keep our you know finger on the pulse of. But I mean, I would say bigger picture and broadly, um, you know, geopolitics stands out. Um, China is uh, definitely uh, kind of beating to their own drum. Um, you know, you know, uh, Xi Jinping has definitely made it clear that Taiwan is part of China and uh, what happens with they formally uh, kind of make that happen um kind of like what they did with hong kong how does the the global community react to that um domestically uh our politics are so extreme um it's very unfortunate we can't um compromise or uh, do anything i mean infrastructure is a great example of that i mean everybody agrees especially anybody that travels globally that our infrastructure needs serious upgrading, uh, and not just upgrading, but you know, uh, you know, repairs to make sure it, uh, you know, we, you know, bridges don't literally fall into the, the water and stuff. So um, we can't even compromise on that, and so that just shows you how bad our politics are. And we've always been, you know, the U.S. is what made us great. Is that we always do when there does become issues or we see 
you know, something that's uh, an obstacle, we come and find a, a compromise solution that just continues to propel us forward. And it seems like that's been missing over the years. And, um, you know, I think we're, you know, that's a very big worry for me long term because of what that could entail. I mean, we could end up with a very far right or far left uh, president or um, people in Congress. And so it's we're just too divided. We don't have critical thinking. We're not really looking at the issues, uh, you know, just objectively and trying to solve them objectively. We've got a lot of serious issues out there that need to be addressed that we just kind of either ignore them or think, you know, keep push, kicking the can down the road in a sense that we can't do that with. Yeah, it's really hard to invest long-term when you start to go down that road and think about what could happen, um, which is why it's good to either be liquid or to maintain control over your portfolio so that um, if things change, you have some real control. Um, yeah. you, you talked about China, and if I followed your math earlier, about 15% of your portfolio is invested in China. Um, I know no. some folks- No, no, said, I said Asia. Oh, Asia. Okay. I'm yeah. so sorry that you did say Asia. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so are you invested? I mean, would you invest in China given the political situation today? Well, I, I've always been a China skeptic. So uh, I would say, you know, even when China was, you know, very topical and everybody was going in there, I was, you know, when I looked at it and studied it, I had my concerns because you'd hear these stories and my big worry was rule of law and property rights and you know you'd kind of you know just how they did business in general and and to be fair the US has some cities where it's you know it's not much different you know where uh you know there's probably some graft and whatnot but um guess which city those are but uh and so but the bottom line was is that the the rule of law and property rights and how the game was played really scared me. And so we never did any direct or China-centric funds. Our exposure is only through uh, a global fund or through a Pan-Asian fund that might invest in China, but we, we try to really make sure our China exposure is limited. Now, I believe in the growth story. I believe in the growth of the middle class. I believe in everything they're doing. Uh, it's impressive, but I just, I'm not sure of what could happen. And I think what's transpired over the last year where, I mean, you know, basically uh, the government is, is limiting how much game, you know, how much video game time students can play, you know? Um, so they're, you know, getting really into the, you know, in their fingers into uh, individuals' lives and they've done it with business too. Um, you know, we've seen many examples with that, with the tech companies. And so that scares me. So that's, that's, you know, just those examples is why we've been very cautious. And I call myself a China skeptic, but going again, you know, believing in the growth and stuff is we try to play the derivative play. So being, uh, you know, in the countries around there that are benefiting from it, the Japans, the Australias, et cetera, uh, and try to take advantage of it that way, derivatively, where we've got the rule of law and property rights on our side, but we can benefit from the growth uh, from China. Understood. Um, let's touch on the question of ESG because um, it's very much on everybody's mind these days. Does Texas ERS have an ESG policy? Uh, I would say uh, yes and no. Um, I would say our policy is probably not as formal as some of the other state plans that are out there. Um, and we don't 
maybe define ESG maybe in the same sense or look at in the same sense uh, as some of the other uh, state plans out there. But we do monitor the trends in the regulatory environment, which impacts our investments and, and how that could play out and what the future holds. So in a sense, we do have an ESG policy because we're paying attention to, you know, what is New York doing with, um, you know, the uh, zero carbon emissions laws down the road, you know, what London is doing or the UK in general with that. Um, uh, I think California's mandated um, public companies have a certain number of women and minorities on their boards. So we, we try to pay attention to that just to make sure we're not you know, uh, blindsided, but just to understand the market as well. But uh, again, I don't think it's in the same vein as maybe what mainstream thinks of as ESG. Yeah, well, I think mainstream is an evolving issue. I, I sit on the Global um, Global Council for Urban Land Institute, and uh, there are European investors in that group that they cannot bring an investment deal to their IC if it doesn't have a zero emissions uh, program by, you know, 10 years out or even sooner, they have to be able to articulate what it is. Um, and they wouldn't even consider bringing something to their IC without that. So they're, yeah. they're just thinking about it very differently, much, in a much more concrete yeah. way than we are today. Well, let's end up with some rapid fire questions if we can. Uh, tell sure. us, Bob, who was the most influ influential person in your life? Um, sure, so I, I always think that's an interesting question because you know, uh, we always think of, you know, the role models, et cetera, but, uh, you know, kind of talking about the earlier part of the discussion of uh, when I've had some life experience and whatnot, but as the Dalai Lama has said, and I paraphrase, you know, that people that cause you conflict um, are good teachers and they help you to grow as a person and you have to really look at that. So, uh, I've had a, a lot of influential people in my life from different perspectives, you know, in that sense. But um, so anyway, just kind of going to answer your question, you know, many, many people, you know, from swim coaches, teammates, family, friends, coworkers, et cetera. But I would say the one person who's had a pretty um, impactful uh, uh, influence on me is my dad. Um, he's such a great example of unconditional love and how we should be living our life. Uh, he's leaving such a legacy with how he treats people. And that is a gift that I've been fortunate to witness and see firsthand, so. And you have um, a couple of sons. Tell us, what do you most want right. to communicate to your boys? So, um, yes, I have two sons, Zachary and Benjamin. Um, one just graduated college and the other is a senior in college. So they are definitely young adults. Um, and the one thing I want to communicate is, is, is really kind of summed up in this uh, quote. And this is my favorite quote. It's by St. John the Cross. And it says, he says, in the twilight of life, God will not judge us on our earthly possessions or human successes, but on how well we have loved. And I just, I want them to go through life and making sure they don't lose sight of our purpose here on earth. Um, it's very get, easy to get distracted by what society views as success, but that may not be um, really what success is uh, in the next life, if that's what you believe in. So, um, you know, I don't know. I think there is one, you know, you got to hedge your bets. And so um, that is the one thing I want them to do is uh, just to make sure they treat people nicely and with love and kindness, et cetera. So beautiful words. Um, and Bob, what's your favorite place to travel? Gosh, how can you have one favorite place to travel? There's so <laughs> many to choose from. So 
it really depends on the mood and what we want. Do we want the beach? Do we want the city, the urban? So I'll have to leave it at that. I can't choose just one. Fair enough. You know, we've all we've all spent a lot of time over the last year and a half dreaming about places we'd like to be that we can't go to yeah. right now. So I can appreciate there's a lot of them. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Really appreciate all your thoughts okay. and comments and words of wisdom. Um, yeah. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's all for this week's episode of Refi Radio's Innovations in Real Estate. Thanks to Bob for his candor about his investment portfolio. As always, thanks to Nancy for hosting. We'd also like to thank Park Madison Partners for working with Refi on this podcast series. For more information on the firm, please visit their website at parkmadisonpartners.com. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Benson. Theme music is by Jazzhar. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Refi Radio in partnership with Park Madison Partners. I'm Will Moyo. Until next time.